There's no obligation for a doctor to, to put themselves obviously in harm's way. For example, if there was an active coronavirus uh, patient on a, on a COVID ward in a hospital and they said, we have no more PPE, you will go in and uh, do a ward round or assess the patient. You've seen these memes going around the internet saying, <laughs> doctors saying, stay inside unless you want a gynecologist to do your intubation. <laughs> um, I haven't and, seen that one. But possibly uh, it's also born out of real world experience where possibly in Italy or uh, France or Spain or the UK, where doctors have actually had to significantly move over from, uh, from let's say that they are a pediatrician and then manning uh, adult ITU machines. Welcome to this MIPS podcast, that is the Medical Indemnity Protection Society. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss the medical and dental clinical legal issues that doctors and dental professionals in Australia are faced with. This is our first episode. I'm your host, Chris Malin. I'm not a lawyer, nor a healthcare practitioner, but was joined today by one of those intelligent individuals who works for MIPS, who has the expertise in both healthcare and legal matters, Dr. Mark Carswell. He's a GP, originally trained in the UK, and one of the clinical legal advisors in MIPS's professional services team. I had a list of questions for him that have been sent in by some of our PGY 2 to 10 doctors who are working in hospitals, and also some questions that we've taken from members in private practice and general practice who've called our 24-hour clinical legal support line. There are some very good questions practitioners have asked us. We get to all the clinical legal questions. That's where we're the experts. Thanks so much to everyone who submitted a question. We're recording this in May 2020, just so you know, as COVID crisis is moving very fast. The materials provided are for educational purposes only. Whilst we take all reasonable care in preparing these materials, including the accuracy of the information supplied, we do not accept any liability whatsoever arising out of the use or reliance of the information provided. We are here to protect and support our members, healthcare practitioners in some of their most difficult career moments. Medicine and dentistry are specialist careers and require equally matched specialist support and protection. We will now head to the podcast. Dr. Mark Garswell, perhaps you can start by telling us a little bit about your job as a clinical legal advisor at MIPS. Hi, Chris, and, and uh, thanks for inviting me on. Um, yes, I uh, divide my time between uh, general practice working in Geelong and uh, MIPS generally working in the in the Melbourne office. But uh, as with many people in the in Australia and the health profession, we're doing a home working at the moment with MIPS. I, as you say, I'm a UK trained GP and have been in Australia for 10 years and have been on the specialist register as a GP for 15 years. And um, part of my role as a medical legal advisor with MIPS is um, being one of the first points of contact with members when they have a patient related query or any concerns about a, a clinical legal uh, matter. Um, and yes, as you say, we've had some very interesting questions posed by members. Yeah. And how long have you been working with MIPS? I think it's probably four years, maybe approaching five years. And uh, much like in medicine, <laughs> you uh, never know what uh, what question is going to be asked by members at the best of times, but particularly through the the coronavirus, it's thrown up lots of new queries that uh, that I've certainly never been asked before, and and certainly people who've been working in uh, in the industry and with MIPS for much longer than I. 
have been asked before. I think people would be surprised to know, I mean, how much of your job relates to defending members who have been sued as such, because that's how people often think about indemnity and malpractice mm. or professional indemnity, and how much of it relates to advice, the type of things we're going to discuss today. Yeah, well, it's a good, good question, and and I suppose a lot of uh, a lot of members' fears and doctors' fears generally are: Am I going to be sued, and what happens to me if I get sued? But as you point out, the vast majority of calls that come through to MIPS, sometimes how best to proceed with a difficult patient or a difficult consultation, or uh, if if members have had a, a a verbal or written complaint, or if they they have had issues with. Uh, the medical board or if they have to um, respond to coroner's requests or even issues with their employer if they're a public hospital. So we get a big wide range of uh, calls through and I would say it was the vast, vast minority that are uh, that are, relate to members being sued, as it were. First question we're going to jump into today concerns trading programs. We had a mm. few members ask this in different ways, but I guess the, the, the overarching issue is what impact has COVID-19 had or do you think we'll have on the work and training life of, of say, PGY two to ten doctors? Well, um, certainly, uh, there's lots of fear about what the uh, the disruption of the of the the coronavirus crisis has had on on training, not only with regard to if there were a planned timetable of exams or just general concerns about career progression, but also about um, about having access to mentors and and, and trainers through the the uh, through the coronavirus crisis. And actually, in preparation for today, I, I had a look to see what resources there were out there from the college, the the respective colleges, and and obviously first I looked at what my college, the Royal Australian College of GPs, were saying. And helpfully, actually, the AMA <clears throat> um, have prepared a document uh, online that's freely available that, that you don't need to be a, a current AMA member to access that's a real-time Excel spreadsheet of all the updates from all the respective colleges relating to, uh, I suppose, for, for, for specialty trainees about how the, the, the crisis is affecting examinations and career progression. Uh, also, other, other information from the respective colleges about things like course fees and exam fees and, uh, and special COVID 19 leave and uh, I, I think there's also uh, information on there even for pre pre-vocational trainees about the application process and how that might be affected so the AMA resource is very good and, and I think the AMA also make a concession that 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 uh, even though it, they say it's a real-time document that members should maybe just approach their respective specialist colleges for for, for any further updates or if they've got any specific queries because no doubt they're being asked lots of lots of similar questions from lots of members at the minute. Yeah, I think the only thing our members can grab onto to say, oh, have I done the wrong thing or something, is that they're all in the same boat, that examinations were cancelled for, for everyone. So it's not like your work life and training is <coughs> impeded any more or less than your peers. It's it's more an issue for the community as such, I think. Yeah, but, uh, and it's a good good, good, good point. I think a, a trainee would probably, unless they've got that support network of, of lots of peers, they might feel that, that they're facing these issues alone and... Uh, uh, no doubt there are online forums and 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 uh, other resources where where members, even if they're not mixing as much as they would socially, would be able to uh, to 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 have safety in numbers to be reassured that they're all going through the same thing. I'm going to move now to telehealth, and these issues will obviously affect our doctors, uh, also some of our dentists. Really, I didn't realise tele dentistry um, <coughs> was really such a thing, but it has become some for some mm. people. Uh, 
there's a clinics out there that are moving to 100% telehealth, and they've asked us what they have to do about patients who need immunizations, cervical screening, uh, demanding to be seen, uh, you know, trauma emergencies. Well, uh, I mean, maybe if I just talk about my uh, my GP practice in, in Geelong, that, that yes, when when the crisis was unfolding, it was uh, there was lots of fear and uncertainty, and there were no systems in place to how uh, how clinics would deal with telehealth. And certainly, the way we're doing it is we're trying to um, uh, primarily deal with things by telehealth if we can. But obviously, just for example, um, yesterday I. Uh, did a, a telephone consultation with uh, a patient with upper back pain, uh, and obviously during the the, the, the telephone discussion, I I, I ascertained that uh, I couldn't safely assess this back pain. I wanted to rule out PEs, for example. I wanted to listen to the chest, and obviously there are limitations to what you can achieve by telephone consultations. And and the way that uh, our clinic has approached it is that we triage all patients by phone and if we need to see them then we arrange to see them face to face with appropriate PPE uh, as the as a situation um fits but uh, but as i say as as you intonated i think that there are clinics who have uh, well individual practitioners maybe who set who've decided that, that for their own reasons they're going to uh, undertake 100% telehealth and as you say there are some clinics that I understand have decided to uh, do uh, only 100% telehealth and interestingly and importantly I think that APRA um, uh, released a statement probably about three or four weeks ago I think where they, they said that um, if doctors do telehealth they need to have arrangements whereby patients can be seen if they needed to be seen. And uh, APRA stressed that uh, it doesn't mean that the the obligations of a doctor under the Code of Conduct no longer apply uh, just because there's telehealth and, and doctors need to be consider, uh, constantly reflecting on the fact that there are limitations to what you can achieve by telehealth. And I suppose a, pot a potential danger to a clinic or a doctor who says, I'm only going to do 100% telehealth is what are you going to do when you need to assess the patient with abdominal pain? Or what are you going to do, as you, as you said in your, in your, in your question about uh, delivering childhood immunizations? And APRA were quite clear that uh, a doctor has to have... Uh, uh, make arrangements for the patient to be seen by a doctor. Now, uh, arguably, that's a little bit vague because, for example, one of the doctors that I took a call from um, uh, asked a question about, uh, can I prescribe an antibiotic to a child because the mother said there's a cough? And obviously, that isn't ideal without examining the child. And it's inadvisable because it, it poses medical legal risks. And ideally, that child should be invited into the clinic to be assessed. Now, that doctor who asked the question had uh, uh, their clinic were apparently not seeing any patients who had respiratory symptoms at all. Um, and he had maybe suggested that instead of prescribing an antibiotic, he simply advised the patient to go to ED. And you can imagine how ED might not be particularly happy if that's a pattern. Uh, and arguably, uh, that might not uh, in our eyes or the board's eyes, fulfil the obligation to arrange an assessment by another doctor, um, because I, I suspect what they had in mind is is maybe arranging a specific doctor in your clinic 
to see a patient if uh, if you personally had decided you were going to do 100% telehealth or indeed if the clinic itself was doing 100% telehealth that um, the doctor maybe has an arrangement with a nearby clinic who is seeing patients to arrange for the patient to be seen. So there are risks to the, 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 the blanket decision of a, a doctor or a clinic to, to just do 100% telehealth. Uh, yeah, it's really challenging for practitioners. I suppose you mm. not necessarily think about the legal risks when you're pushing away patients uh, for respiratory conditions, thinking, oh, well, that protects me, it protects my staff, mm. uh, especially if it's an older <coughs> practitioner or you've got well, exactly. uh, staff who are older. Mm. That makes it quite difficult. Mm. I'll move now towards the uh, to the hospital um, forum again because I guess what we're just discussing is most relevant to GPs. Mm. Uh, Personal protective equipment wasn't a household term, but it seems to have become one. Is me? Um, we all talk about it as PPE. Uh, <laughs> uh, I know the UK has got some big concerns that they might run out of uh, PPE, and uh, I don't know if it's actually happened in places. I saw some news stories about them washing PPE, which was um, <laughs> previously a complete no-no, and they could wash it maybe up to three times. But if you are a hospital doctor, um, uh, can you be compelled to work if there's no personal protective equipment? Well, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting and, and pertinent question, I suppose, for, and particularly given the experience, as you say, of, of GP and uh, of, uh, G, of doctors in the UK and in Italy, uh, when they have had much more of a traumatic time with the incidence of, uh, of um, COVID in hospitals and, and combining with the, the, the global shortage of PP. And as you say, it's uh, I'm sure the average person, non-medical in the street, had ne- never heard the words P- uh, the letters PPE before. But now, uh, now everyone knows what it means. And and yes, in the media, we've seen all these uh, news stories of nurses in the UK who've been wearing bin bags. Uh, and uh, and certainly, I know I know that we have had some questions asked by uh, uh, UK trained doctors who are now working in Australia in intensive care, and no doubt the questions have arisen because they are. Not only seeing what's in the media, but uh, discussing the uh, the issues with with peers back in the UK, who who I've certainly got um, uh, colleagues back in the UK who uh, work in intensive care, and hearing the stories of what they've gone through in the last couple of months is very harrowing. Um, so yes, very relevant questions about PP. I suppose. Specifically on the compulsion to work, I mean, is is that something a hospital can do to a doctor, say, yeah, there's no gowns, there's no masks, but we still want you to be at the COVID screening clinic? Well, my view, and I suspect this would be the view of MIPS and and my my fellow um, clinical legal advisors, is that there's no obligation for a doctor to, to put themselves obviously in harm's way. For example, if there was an active coronavirus a patient on a on a COVID ward in a hospital, and they said we have no more PPE. You will go in and uh, do a ward round or assess the patient. So I can't see that there would be either a, a legal or or, a, or or any other form of compulsion that would, would 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 make a doctor have to do that. But I suppose these are <clears throat> the questions are born out of fears that what would happen if and when we run out of PPE, um, and. As you, you pointed out, I'm not aware that in Australia, the, although the, uh, the 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 supplies have been uh, in in short uh, supply uh, compared to the UK, we've not uh, got to the stage of talking about putting your um, 
your N95 masks in the oven at home or uh, putting your your, uh, your masks out in a sealed bag in the sun <laughs> uh, to have UV light to treat them, as much as Donald Trump suggested that we uh, Ooh, we have some novel. Well, I, I think I was referring to Donald Trump suggesting that we put UV light inside the body of some people or injecting uh, <laughs> disinfectant. So, <laughs> but but yes, there was there, there was some evidence in in uh, the, the medical media about the fact that UV light, i.e., sunlight, uh, could potentially have a, a sterilizing effect. But then there were uh, there was other evidence that suggested that uh, that has the potential potential to damage the the actual masks, similar to putting them in the oven, uh, although it may well kill the virus if it's at 60 or 70 degrees for an hour or whatever the, the evidence suggested that actually that that can actually damage the protective uh, fabric of the mask. So there's lots of lots of information in the media and on, on, online about all these uh, fears about having to reuse masks and PPE. And no doubt that has fed into some of the questions that have been asked about what happens if and when. And all I would say is that these are very pertinent questions to be asking, but I suppose they would ideally be posed to your hospital seniors and line managers to, to get hopefully some reassurance, A, that the supplies are not as dire as uh, as as the worst case scenario when you're awake at 2am <laughs> thinking about going into work in the morning, but also um, that, uh, that there are plans afoot. And I'm sure uh, the hospital uh, line managers and heads of department would also offer a reassurance to members that, that I've offered that I think there would be no compulsion uh, for for doctors to go and willingly put themselves at risk because there's no PPE. Uh, but as I say, if, mem if just go on. We've had a couple of questions which are mm. more related. They might be more for the, uh, you know, the health officials or uh, of the Department of Health or the, the hospitals themselves. But mm. one of our members has asked us um, if there's a legal position on using self-purchased personal protective equipment. Who is that a question for? Well, uh, I suppose I... Uh, would approach that question by, by, I suppose if a member called me, I would explore what has prompted the question. So, for example, I'm a self-employed GP contractor, so I'm, uh, I, I don't have, uh, as it were, an employment contract or terms and conditions that 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 a, a hospital employed trainee would have, um, and. Early on in the piece, uh, when uh, faced with the the protective goggles that I had in my clinic, I made the decision to go to Bunnings, as many doctors have done, to see what what PPE that might be available. And uh, there were N95 graded masks, there were um, uh, face masks and shields that were much more, in my opinion, protective than the the glasses that uh, that I had in my clinic. Um, so I made a decision to buy one of the face shields. Now, that, that's very different to, I suppose, uh, the position that a hospital doctor would be if they decided to go to Bunnings and bring their own personal equipment in <clears throat> for use on a COVID ward because the arguably uh, the, the hospital has a duty of care not only to the patients but also to uh, the members of staff and uh, I, I imagine that if uh, hospital doctors came in with their own purchase PPE there would be questions asked uh, um, from line managers about what authority they a had to 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 
to go and purchase their own uh, PPE, but also what safety standards and what sort of messages it sends to all the other juniors. So I, I, my personal view is that if a, if a doctor was considering buying their PPE for use in hospitals, it would be not to. Uh, but in the first instance, have the discussions with the heads of department about their fears that were maybe prompting them to consider doing that, uh, to open a dialogue. Because I think <clears throat> by turning up uh, with self-purchased PPE of, of unknown or questionable uh, safety standards, then it's only going to put a bit of friction between the employee and the hospital managers so no doubt the hospitals will be have their internal policies based on national guidance about ppe so yeah that would be the bottom line to discuss with the the, the, the heads of department the hospitals obviously have some responsibility to for the safety of their employees we've got mm. this question which is quite technical actually the member wants to know what the legal position is regarding fit testing for personal protective equipment because the hospitals have some obligation. I imagine that personal protective equipment is worn and fitted properly, that staff are trained to use their masks properly. And is that that's a purely a hospital policy issue, is it? Well, probably not, because I think fit testing, when it relates to PPE, I imagine this is specifically with regard to fit testing of the, the, the special N95 masks that you may well have heard of. That essentially, uh, there's a, a very um, methodological thing uh, that, that a, a wearer has to do. And, and, and I think the advice is that, that wearers should be buddied up with someone to do a PPE um, fit check and and it's it, it involves how you put the mask on and 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 ways to go around checking that there's a proper seal that there's no leakage of air because arguably um an n95 mask or pp if used inappropriately either won't be effective or at worst even be harmful because it might give a false sense of security to the wearer and again without knowing the specifics of of, of what um of what's behind the question about the fit testing there's a possibility that the question was asked because perhaps our member has felt either unsupported in resources i.e we don't have the the time because it, it it takes time to do a proper fit test. Uh, we don't have the time or resources in having a buddy uh, before going in to see a, to see a, a COVID patient on a COVID ward, and maybe they feel that there's a bit of pressure just to pop the mask on and that will be good enough. Um, and again, those are valid concerns, um, but uh, I, I would hope that if they raised them in a in a, a collegiate way with the heads of department. Uh, that there would be a way forward to ensure not only that the PPE is available, but that it's used appropriately. Let's jump back to telehealth for a moment. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you a question that's come from a member. This is a bona fide, genuine question. They've said, I am a GP and I'm currently working from home and consulting by telehealth as I'm self-isolated while waiting for my swab result to return. Mm. Can a colleague in my clinic, print off the prescriptions that I add to the patient's file and sign them on my behalf. 
sounds reasonable. It, <laughs> um, well, on on first read, it might, or first listen, it might sound reasonable. Uh, I, the short answer to that would be no. Uh, the longer answer would be, um, I suppose, the real risk and the real question should be being asked by the doctor who is going to be signing the prescriptions. Because although the, the uh, doctor who's self-isolating at home will have assessed the patient to the best of their ability and, and issued a prescription, by printing and signing the prescription back in the clinic, it's the other doctor who would actually be taking on two things, I suppose. One is the legal responsibility and the ramifications of that if there's a harm that results from the, the, the prescription, let's say uh, a, a penicillin is prescribed to an anaphylactic, uh, a patient with a history of penicillin and anaphylaxis. But also uh, by signing the prescription, um, the uh, medical board would uh, would deem that there's an obligation uh, to abide by the code of conduct, which is you, you've essentially struck up a treating relationship by prescribing for the patient. So the doctor who signs it should ideally revisit the history uh, and examination and management plan if they're going to be able to defend their decision to prescribe. It's very difficult because uh, early on in the piece, I had horrible viral type symptoms and, and uh, my swab eventually came back as negative. But during that time, I was consulting with patients from home. And uh, we had to, again, because they were new situations that we were all facing, had to work out how to get prescriptions to pharmacies. And uh, the way I and my clinic uh, managed that was to have a a, a, a prescription pad at home and we would handwrite prescriptions for uh, for medications and ask the patient which pharmacy they wanted it to be sent to and then contact the pharmacies and check that they were happy and they got a secure email for me to email a copy through. So it was all very laborious. And and even then, when when the, the prescription had been received by the pharmacy, when I, and I, when I eventually got back into the clinic, there were some of the, the hard copy prescriptions that when we posted from the clinic never arrived for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so it was a very uh, inefficient, shall we say, way of doing it. And actually, it's quite timely because I think the day before yesterday, the first ever electronic prescription was dispensed by a GP in all of Australia. It was in Victoria, actually, and that was dispensed. So I think that the e-prescriptions had been um, had been talked about for a long time, but, but as with many of these things, have been accelerated forwards because of the, uh, the coronavirus crisis. So as you can probably imagine, that would cut out a lot of the phoning pharmacies and sending emails and lost prescriptions. I'm sure in 20 years we'll look back on how we have uh, printed these little bits of paper and signed them and handed them to the patient who took them off to the pharmacy or seem quite archaic because everything else now is is online and Absolutely. electronic. But interestingly, <laughs> when I read the, uh, the, the uh, news article about the uh, electronic prescriptions this week, it said... Uh, patients will be sent an SMS that, with their unique code that they can present on their mobile phone to the pharmacy or they can uh, present one of these, I can't even remember the name, but you know those little barcode. It's a QR, QR code. Is QR what code. Heard. I can't yeah. even remember the name of them, let alone trying to explain to a 90-year-old patient what a QR code is. <laughs> uh, so uh, it'll be interesting to see, although the technology is wonderful, I'm sure it will throw up lots of 
user facing issues, but also I'm sure it will throw up sort of member issues or medical legal issues about who knows whether the, in time there are some sort of IT issues or um, nefarious people getting access to morphine prescriptions somehow because there's always uh, sneaky well, people getting around systems. That. Well, one would hope so, but I suppose um, uh, you know, however many hundreds of cyber attacks there are on an, on an individual business uh, with a new IT system. I'm sure there are glitches and holes and opportunities for bad players to, to make bad decisions at some point. So we shall see. <laughs> now, talking telehealth again, can a doctor charge uh, telehealth 100% private that is not submit an item number to Medicare and therefore sidestep the condition that certain patients must be bulk billed? Um, it's a very interesting question and one that uh, very early on in the piece was asked by lots of uh, unhappy, quite rightly so, I suppose, um, non-GP specialists uh, in the piece because when the telehealth items were first announced, there was a, a, a requirement that certain groups are bulk billed and they're not allowed to have been charged a gap fee, for example, um, pension card holders and children and and interestingly, people who are deemed to be at risk of complications from COVID and that that encompassed many, many patients and and non-GP specialists and GPs who were, were, were consulting um, from home rightly felt aggrieved that the government were dictating that patients had to be bulk billed when arguably it's not uh, the doctor's fee, it's the, it's the patient's rebate for the consultation. Um, and I suppose when I was asked that question uh, back early in the piece from a GP, uh, a non-GP specialist, the advice was uh, um, it's impossible to know what the Department of Health and what Medicare and arguably what APRA would think of um, charging a 100% private fee to a patient who arguably will be aware or will become aware that, that the legislation says that, that they have to be bulk billed because you can imagine a patient who pays $200 to a specialist for a telehealth consultation who the next day finds out that, that their friend or in the media they realise that they should have been bulk billed will be rightly aggrieved and could complain anywhere. Now, things changed because um, the regulations to non-GP specialists uh, meant that they could uh, they could uh, levy a private fee on top of the Medicare rebate. So um, questions from non-GP specialists calm down a little bit. But frustratingly, and I'm speaking as a GP, uh, the, 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 uh, the Department of Health and Medicare have excluded GPs from that cha that change. So we, uh, if we if we build the the if we undertake telehealth, then we are still uh, legislated to bulk bill the patient. And again, as I uh, mentioned, that, that this seems very unfair to A, um, differentiate us from uh, our non-GP specialist colleagues, but, but, but also um, uh, from the fact that, that uh, it's the government essentially saying you will accept X fee for a service, whereas uh, uh, the, the Medicare rebate technically is the, is the rebate to the patient for our consultation fee. So I think that the, the, Royal, the Royal Australian College of GPs and also um, the AMA are still active in that. Um, 
So. I've no doubt that it was happening right from the beginning anyway in some cases. I mean, the MBS is uh, online is, is such a big document and there was so much information that the practices try to turn themselves upside down to start telehealth. It, it, they may well have been doing it before some of the changes came through. Yeah, and even even though I'm in a, a private or mixed billing clinic, uh, I think it, it's it's logistically also very difficult. If, if So, for example, at the moment, there are patients that I can uh, I can levy a, a, a gap fee on because uh, they're not in and they're not a pension card holder and they're not in an at-risk category. But logistically, it's it's difficult to financially consent someone on the phone to say before we continue this consultation. Let's move on to this public-private partnership. Very early in the COVID piece, the government, uh, federal government, Australia organised for private hospitals to start opening themselves up to see public patients, and that obviously was a great idea to try and increase the amount of uh, ICU beds that would be available and just the amount of doctors who could potentially see patients. Uh, it did create some 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 legal issues. We've had a member ask uh, uh, who will indemnify them if they treat these patients because uh, there are some obviously doctors who will be working in those private hospitals who might be employees, they might be contractors and uh, uh, Mark, where does the, the liability lie in that sort of arrangement? Well, uh, yes, I think that member wasn't alone in asking those questions. And and certainly, I don't think there were questions that were ever ans- asked of MIPS or the other MDOs previously, because uh, essentially, a, a public patient is a public patient. And uh, as such, the treatment that they receive in the public hospital will be indemnified by the public hospital insurer. But as you, you say, some of these uh, public patients were being transferred to private hospitals to either uh, for, for one member. I spoke to, he was actually going to be operating in the private hospital on one of his patients from the public waiting list. So he knew that patient, but arguably there are going to be other uh, doctors who work in the private hospital who have no prior clinical contact with the public the, the public patient. And quite rightly, before undertaking a hip operation or, or whatever uh, on, a, on a patient, a doctor would quite rightly want to know that their indemnity is in place if, the, if there's a claim or a complaint or, or, or an adverse outcome. Um, and because there were new questions being asked, not only to MIPS and other MDOs, but also being posed to no doubt the uh, the managers high up in the in the private hospitals. Uh, early on, there was no clear answer, uh, but. And behind the scenes, there were very high-level discussions going on uh, amongst the MDOs and and, um, public hospital insurers and other stakeholders. And now there is some clarity, but it's not uh, easy to put into a succinct sentence for you, unfortunately. But um, there is clarity on how we go about establishing and uh, giving our members a very clear answer as to uh, to reassure them that the patient that they operate on their hip uh, tomorrow, that they will either have indemnity cover from MIPS or they will have indemnity cover from uh, another party like the public hospital insurer. And to, 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 to get that answer, the, the advice really to any members who are listening is that they should call MIPS um, and speak um, you can, uh, probably in the first instance to the MIPS membership department. And uh, they are poised and ready uh, to answer exactly this question, and and they 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 they'll gather information from the member uh, that will lead to a, a very clear answer. 
think we've got time for maybe two more questions. Mm. I'll I'll start with the, uh, <clears throat> the, the one about certificates. If you've been mm. asked to provide a, a clearance certificate saying oh, my patient doesn't have coronavirus and can return to work, is, is that mm. a standard medical certificate or is that special in any way? <laughs> So, yeah, it's, uh, I've been asked that sort of question as well, and we've had questions from members uh, to say, can I, should I write such a certificate? And again, the very short, succinct answer is no, uh, don't go near it with a barge pole. <laughs> uh, the reason being is that by, saying, by, by writing a letter in that format to say, Mr. Jones does not have coronavirus, um, how do you know that Mr. Jones doesn't have coronavirus? Either... They don't have symptoms on the day that you assess them and you've done a swab in their nose that show that they have none of the coronavirus RNA on that swab. Um, uh, but as you and your listeners, uh, the listeners will be aware uh, that uh, there's an incubation period. Uh, where um, someone may actually have coronavirus but not test positive yet. Um, there's also a false, uh, a false negative um, uh, rate of, of any of the nasal uh, PCR swabs that arguably is also user-dependent on whoever takes the swab, the technique. Um, so the advice really is not to venture opinion as to whether A, someone has coronavirus and B, whether someone is fit to go to school because they don't have coronavirus. Now, um, it doesn't mean that you, you can't or shouldn't write some form of, of, of document, but it should be very limited and, and very guarded, uh, as with all documents that you put your name to. But one approach that I've taken and that I've advised members is that, that if you see Mr. Jones and he uh, reports that he's got zero symptoms, no fever, no cough, no chorizal symptoms, X, Y, or Z, uh, that you state that. You, you can state that on today's date, Mr. Jones tells me he had no symptoms consistent with a viral infection. And I would probably say that rather than coronavirus. Uh, a, a limitation of that, obviously, it, requ it requires that Mr. Jones is actually being honest with you when he says that he doesn't have symptoms because sometimes there are other agendas of patients to get these letters to go to work, possibly when they, th they feel they've just got a little sniffle that they uh, withhold that information from the doctor. Um, and it might be reasonable to say if you've done a swab on the 10th of the month that was negative, that you state objectively that the patient had a coronavirus swab on the 10th of the month. But don't then go on to say they're fit to return to work because they don't have coronavirus because you are in no position to say that. And uh, as unfortunately was evidenced early on in the piece when uh, a certain health minister named and shamed a, a doctor in in uh, in in Melbourne, a GP, who had returned from overseas with mild, very mild symptoms that I understand at the time wouldn't have crossed the threshold for testing or self-isolation, but subsequently did turn out to be coronavirus. He was named and shamed in the media. So you can imagine what would happen if uh, you provide Mr. Jones with a certificate and he infects. He's responsible for an outbreak in, uh, in a major city. Uh, your letter will be held up, no doubt, in front of the news cameras to, with your mm -hmm. signature at the bottom. So don't do that. Uh, and if, if you feel that there's pressure from a patient or that the, the, the relationship is breaking down because of the, uh, the request that you are quite rightly declining uh, to sign such a letter, by all means, call us. And, and sometimes it's very useful to talk through a strategy with one of the advisors, but also uh, it, it's helpful to be reassured that you're doing the right thing because it, it, it reassures you that, that even if there is some angst 
directed at you from the patient that actually uh, that that we're on your side and and uh, so we'd ra- we'd rather a bit of angst from a patient in that situation than um have to uh, speak to you when your letter's being held up by Mr Jones in front of the news cameras and of course you can always call uh, MIPS to try and speak to someone like Mark to get advice yes, on, exactly. on this very issue. Mm. The last question I want to address is a term which at MIPS I think comes up a lot. It's scope, practising outside your scope. I mean, what are the medico-legal <coughs> ramifications if I am asked to practise outside my usual scope? We've had a couple of members ask us this. One say it's like I've got specialist registration as a GP but I've been sitting signing a contract with a public hospital to provide some ward-based mm. cover. And another where they're saying, I've seen surgeons asked to manage ventilated patients overseas, and I'm wondering what cover I have from MIPS and what protections mm. there are for doctors who are put in that situation. Mm. What, what do you tell doctors when they're asked to, to do something they don't perhaps they haven't got well, actually, qualifications that, that, for? Th- th- those are two very good examples. And the first example, I, I may have had that very, very member speak to me, but uh, um, she was an overseas and international medical graduate, an IMG, uh, and uh, she was a GP and she was on the specialist register as a GP. Um, but she didn't have general registration, which I was a bit puzzled with. Uh, and she informed me, and uh, I'm very open to being educated by members as well. But she informed me that, that uh, she learned from APRA that she didn't have general registration on the APRA website because she obtained her primary qualification overseas and she did her intern year overseas. So she just, in inverted commas, just had specialist registration. Um, so that raised the question in her mind and my mind uh, as to whether she, although she's a specialist GP, is she, the fact she doesn't have general registration, can she go into hospitals to do the job that she was uh, planning to do, which which was well within her general scope uh, in general practice, but because she would be doing it on the wards, she had pause. Uh, she had pause before signing the contract, and. Uh, um, interestingly, APRA did release um, some sort of guidance and, and about doctors working outside of their scope of practice. And specifically on that point about specialist and general registration, I looked on I looked myself up on the APRA website. And yes, indeed, I had specialist but not general registration. But APRA uh, said that... Um, Specialist registration confirms that a medical practitioner has additional specialist qualifications, but the important part was that as well as the qualifications of general registration. So uh, so even though they don't, much like an, an Australian graduate, have both general and specialist registration on, on the APRA website, APRA clarified that uh, because they, no doubt they were getting similar questions from, from, um, from, from medical practitioners. Um, Moving on to the, the other question, yes, that's uh, again possibly born out of uh, fears. And we've, uh, if like me, you've seen these memes going around the internet saying <laughs> doctors saying stay inside unless you want a gynecologist to do your intubation. <laughs> uh, um, I haven't and, seen that one. But 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 possibly uh, it's also born out of real world experience where possibly in Italy or uh, France or. Uh, Spain or the UK, where doctors have actually had to significantly move over from, uh, from let's say that they are a paediatrician and are then uh, uh, manning uh, adult ITU machines, and and concerned obviously that yes, they may have very. 
specific experience in pediatric ICU, but uh, what are the, the the implications if they're now looking after be- just solely because of the, the COVID crisis adult patients? Um, and APRA also helpfully clarified, I suppose they, the first thing they did was they clarified what their role is. And they said quite clearly that the board does not prescribe what individual med- medical practitioners can and cannot do which doesn't really help in one respect, but they did point out that that, uh, that hospitals and health services are actually responsible for ensuring that practitioners uh, staffing their services have the necessary qualifications, skills, training and experience to deliver safe, safe care. And I suppose that's the key, really. Hospitals uh, and individual practitioners, no doubt, will be reflecting on whether they have the necessary skills, training and experience to deliver safe care. And, uh, for example, going back to my flippant gynecologist doing an intubation, although uh, they are both doctors, a gynecologist and a, an ITU specialist, uh, I imagine that a consultant in gynecology would probably reflect on their skills, training and experience and and probably stay away from the header of the patient and probably remain more where they're, where they're used Expertise to. Expertise low. Yes. Well, we are fans um, of saying qualifications, training and experience. That's, uh, I think, I think we've about exhausted the amount of uh, uh, time for questions um, today. Uh, thank you very much, Mark. No, no, very welcome. Uh, I mean, this podcast is a wrap. We hope you tune in for our, our, our next episode. Thanks for listening. Thank Thanks a lot.